Hello, and welcome to City Hope Church. Today, David Wall will be bringing a message on rejection, continuing the sermon series, Junk in Your Trunk. Thank you, thank you. Uh, feel free not to clap. Um, I'm, I'm a little uncomfortable with the clapping. Um, I am okay with money being thrown, however. I am so okay with that. Thank you, Musos. Uh, Junk of the Trunk Month, and so Pastor Peter introduced it uh, last week um, and uh, gave a lovely introduction to it. Um, you are stuck with me for the next two weeks. Today, uh, I'll be speaking on rejection. Uh, the week after, um, I'll be speaking on um, identity. And I'll be speaking about uh, spiritual identity theft, where you've heard about uh, identity theft, where your credit card details, your ID gets stolen and used for illegal activities. Well, next week I'll be talking on spiritual identity theft. Have the enemy steals our identity? And so there's a little bit of overlap between today and next week. You have Brother Damo and um, um, Brian talking next week as well, in the next, next couple of weeks. So today we're talking on rejection, and uh, I said to the, to the team this morning, this is a massive topic. I've preached on this before in other churches, and it's taken me two Sundays to preach on this topic. It's so big. It's such a massive topic. Um, mental health professionals will say to you that depression is the common cold of mental illness these days. And while that's true, uh, I would uh, qualify that by saying rejection is behind that depression and rejection is the common cold of mental health today, both Christian and non-Christians. And I have to say, from my background, it saddens me to see the number of Christians struggling with rejection and shame, which I'll talk about in a second, in their, in their spiritual lives. It's unnecessary. So um, bear with me today. We have a lot to get through. Um, there's some PowerPoint uh, presentations, um, looking at different things. I'll be talking about what is rejection. I'll be talking about uh, a man who is rejected in the Scripture. A man you all know, a man by the name of Jephthah in the Old Testament, and the deep rejection that man went through. I'll be talking about, well, uh, how, do, how, do we, uh, how do we address that rejection? And one of the first things I'll be doing is sharing what not to do what not to do. And I'll be sharing about probably the most important question um, I could ask as a Christian counselor and therapist, engaging a person's spiritual life with one question. Stay tuned. So let's make a start. What's rejection? Thanks, folks. It's from a Latin word, risare, which means to throw back. It means to cast away. I want you to notice that it's a judgment of worthiness, that there is something that we consider unworthy, it's useless and no good. I had the same, uh, this happened a couple of weeks ago where uh, the mower and the edge trimmer gave up the ghost, so to speak. And so I thought, look, um, they're not worth fixing, they're no good anymore, they're unworthy, and so uh, off for the dump, they went. But what happens when it's not just a mower? What happens when it's us? What happens when it's the judgment of worthiness that someone has decided that we are not worthy ourselves? It can be subtle, which I'll talk about in a second. Our parents, school, churches. The primary message is that either I'm unlovable, I'm unworthy, or I'm just not good enough. I remember um, uh, my first sense of rejection when I was 15 and I had my first date. Her name was Kim. And as a 15-year-old boy, I was after what usually what most 15-year-old boys are after. 
her father's weapons collection. <laughs> I love it. Christian man, you're not a church man. He had this amazing weapon collection of both real and replicas. He had guns, he had knives, he had swords, he had arrows. He had, we loved it. Um, and so it didn't take too long before I would invite my friends around to Kim's place, not to see Kim, but to see her dad's weapons collection. For some strange reason, this created some tension between us until eventually she um, said those, those words that no adolescent wants to hear, you're dropped. <laughs> I don't... Women. <laughs> I don't get it. I don't... Go figure. Go figure. Uh, and we can all remember the times in high school where, um, you know, we wanted to be on the sports team. You wanted to be on this particular team. And I can think of times where uh, you can have Woody. You can have Woody or Stretch, as I was known back then. You know, I was the one that John West rejected. It wasn't, it wasn't nice. <laughs> but there are other times where it was more serious. I remember I was, um, I think, about 38 or 40. And um, I was hooking my mum's, uh, making her do her will. And... Uh, on, on the, uh, the paperwork, it said, uh, date of marriage. My parents divorced when I was about eight or nine. And, uh, oh, marriage, September 65. Mum, I was born in November 65. How's that work? And she looked at me and smiled. And at 40 years old, I found out I was illegitimate. I was a mistake. I was a mistake, and my parents, and to tell a long story short, there was debate as to whether, to whether to adopt me, whether to abort me. And so, in human eyes, I was a mistake, but not in God's eyes, which I'll get to in a second. Not by a long shot. Australia. A lot has been written about the Christian origins of Australia, which is true and valid, but we also were founded on abandonment, isolation and rejection. Our spiritual origins, I know for a fact, have a direct link on the high suicide rates that we have today. There is a direct link, I believe, between our spiritual origins and the suicide rate, which I'll get to in a second, when we look at what's called the rejection pendulum, where you embrace that sense of rejection and uh, leading to depression and despair. There's a reason for it. There's also a reason for um, uh, the, uh, the words. Words have a very powerful effect. And um, our country was formed on uh, word curses, essentially. Many kinds of curses. Word curses uh, directed at Australia, um, the colonies. We were a floating jail, the island jail, so to speak. The number of curses over this country uh, was quite pronounced. Some of those curses, I believe, remain seen in the high um, um, suicide rate, mental health issues, etc. So there's a little introduction. So rejection means simply to throw away, it's a judgment of unworthiness, no good, uh, unhelpful, unworthy. There's a story in the Bible of a man called Jephthah. I won't go into it, it's found in Judges 11 and 12. And this man knew rejection. He knew rejection so deeply and I'm just going to just briefly go over the first, the first few verses. Thanks, folks. Now, Jephthah of Gilead was a great warrior. He was the son of Gilead, but his mother was a prostitute. 
Let me stop there. Gilead is a geographical area. Gilead was also his biological father's name. His mother was a prostitute. Gilead's wife also had several sons. Let me stop there quickly. There's some debate as to whether um, he went to this prostitute, she fell pregnant and had a son while he's still married. The general consensus is that he was. This is interesting. The scripture called this man a great warrior and yet, if what we know is true, he committed adultery, slept with a prostitute and produced what would be his firstborn son. Gilead's wife also had several sons and when these half-brothers grew up, they chased Jephthah <laughs> off the land. You will not get any of our father's inheritance, they said, for you are the son of a prostitute. So Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob. Soon he had a band of worthless rebels following him. At about this time, the Ammonites began their war against Israel. When the Ammonites attacked, the elders of Gilead sent for Jephthah in the land of Tob, and the elders said, Come and be our commander. Help us fight the Ammonites. We promise to do whatever you say. But Jephthah said to them, Aren't you the ones who hated me and drove me from my father's house? Why do you come to me now when you're in trouble? Because we need you, the elders replied. If you lead us in battle against the Ammonites, we will make you a ruler over all the people of Gilead. Jephthah said to the, said to the elders, Let me get this. I love the new, the new living translation. I love it. Let me get this straight. Yo, dog. <laughs> if I come with you, and if the Lord gives me victory over the Ammonites, Will you really make me ruler over all the people? The Lord is that witness, the elders replied. And he goes on, and yes, they defeat the Ammonites, um, great victory. This is the same Jephthah you might remember. He said, he made this rash vow, and he said, Lord, if you give me victory, I'll sacrifice what comes out of the house. And lo and behold, his daughter comes out. Again, there's some controversy about whether he would actually literally kill or sacrifice his daughter. I don't believe so. Um, the Ammonites were a nasty group. They were descendants of Lot. Anything about Lot? Um, his daughters got him pregnant. I uh, pregnant. Uh, daughters got pregnant through their father through incest, and their descendants were the Ammonites. They were a sexually depraved and bloodthirsty Lot, involved in uh, child sac- ritual child sacrifice and blood sacrifice. Nasty group. Um, and God said, "Do not." Do not follow the way of the Ammonites. Do not follow the way of the nations that, that you're about to drive out. I don't believe God would accept Jephthah's sacrifice of his daughter on the one hand, and at the same time accept, oh, look, but you can't, these guys are doing the wrong thing, but you can. I don't accept that. The Hebrew actually says, um, I'll, whatever comes out, I'll devote to you, and I will give a sacrifice. That's what it means, actually. And it says, you know, she, she um, lamented her virginity all, the, all, the, all her years and never married. So essentially, he devoted her to the temple. All right, she wasn't allowed to marry. That's what actually happened. He never sacrificed his daughter. A bit of trivia there. Okay, Gilead. So this guy Gilead had a son via prostitution. His name was, was Jephthah. Interestingly, he stays around. And he takes responsibility for his behaviour, which is nice. I meet kids and teenagers all the time. They go, "Never met my dad. Never knew him." Lived when he was when I was 18 months old. But I wonder what it was like for Gilead's wife. Here's, especially if this happened while they were in, where they were still married, I wonder what she must have felt looking at that child. 
Every time she saw that child, she would be reminded of her husband's sin, her husband's unfaithfulness, and the tension that would have created in the relationship. Our things were fine, I'm sure, when they were toddlers, and the father was around to keep an eye on things. But his very presence was in the home was a constant reminder of the father's sin. And sometimes we know we're rejected, but no words are spoken. And when his father died, though, these half-brothers, uh, obviously they all, they all grew up, and things changed. His restraining hand wasn't there anymore. You can imagine it. You're not even one of our family. You're the son of a prostitute. You're not going to have our father's inheritance. You were just an illegitimate bastard of a harlot. You can imagine the language used. And so he was rejected by his siblings, his stepmother, and the community. Now, I actually feel sorry, she's never mentioned, she's not really talked about here, that prostitute. Unlike today where you have what's called, apparently, sex workers, back in those days, for a woman to be a prostitute means she had no husband, she was socially isolated, an outcast of society, and the only way she could stop from starving was to sell her body. I genuinely feel sorry for that woman. Um, what happened? Did she give Jephthah um, away? Um, we're not sure. Did she would like to have had to watch him grow up, uh, but didn't have the means, and gave him said, "Look, you, you take him." We're not sure. But either way, here's a man here who had um, who was conceived out of wedlock. This is a Jewish culture. It would have been enormous shame with that. He was rejected from conception. He experienced rejection growing up by his own family. That in this family, and some of you may have experienced this, if you came from a blended family or step family, we're all equal in this family. But some of us are a bit more equal than others. And so there's, you know when, when there's something, uh, something not right in your family, where you have a sibling a brother or sister who is the golden child. Yes, my parents love me, but, and yet there was this special relationship with my sibling. And that sense of rejection can be so subtle and yet so painful. Just quickly, what can we learn from Jephthah? The first one. Rejection has a twin called shame. Shame is so deep. Shame will lead to destruction, which I'll talk about in a second. But it's also so illogical, but it feels so real. For women, and I know there's some women here too, who've experienced domestic violence. I've met many over the years, where you know at a head level, when he hit you, when he slapped you, when he pushed you, it wasn't your fault. That when he hit you for burning the dinner, at some level you knew it wasn't your fault, and yet there's a sense of shame. You knew that it wasn't your fault that he was violent, and yet, why do I feel as much? Maybe, maybe I provoked him. Maybe I could try harder. For some folks, they experience childhood abuse, and I see this every day, especially childhood sexual abuse, the most gross violation of boundaries. And I meet many uh, victims of, of, uh, of sexual abuse and child abuse, and they grow up knowing, they, go, they say, David, I know I was a child. I know it wasn't my fault. And yet I feel such shame. It's like there's 
I feel schizophrenic. I feel like there's two bits of me fighting. My head says one thing, my heart says another. And I feel so deeply ashamed. And yet the adult part of me goes, it wasn't my fault. But the child part goes, why do I feel so icky? Maybe it wasn't physical stuff. Maybe it was just words. Maybe some of you here had uh, a parent or grandparent that they didn't touch you physically, but by gee, their words did. Maybe there were words spoken that no matter what you did, it wasn't good enough. Maybe all you wanted was to see the love in your mum and dad's eyes and all you got was guilt and shame. Maybe you went to uh, your dad and said, Dad, Dad, look, I've got a B, I've got a B minus. A B minus, I've worked so hard. I've got a B minus. And he looks at it, looks at you with cold, steely eyes and goes, I've told you before, we are spending thousands on private education and you give me this. Don't come back until you get that A. And he throws it away and you go back to your room and you cry because all you wanted was your dad's approval. All you wanted was for your mum and dad to say, well done. Is that too much to ask? Oh, they might not have touched you physically. They might not have hurt you physically. But those wounds, 10, 20, 30, 40 years later, are still painful. I remember I met a lady like that about three months ago. She was 80. She was a little girl at the fall of, uh, fall of Singapore in World War II. And she can remember the words spoken by her parents over her. Seven decades later. Rejection has a twin called shame. It is illogical, but it feels so true, so real. Jephthah found himself in bad company. And I imagine a lot of these same young people came from similar backgrounds. And for, some, for those of us who work with youth, one of the, the themes that we notice is that um, uh, they'll tend to aggravate towards other people who have similar backgrounds. And so uh, for young folks who have a history of drugs or rejection um, or other uh, life issues, they tend to uh, gravitate towards others who have the same issues. Like produces like. And so... Um, what I can learn from Jephthah here is, because he went away, uh, well, he was chased away, and he uh, found a group of young men with similar backgrounds, troubled youth. Point number two, be very careful what you do with your shame and rejection. Peter said last week, uh, I like his analogy, um, about uh, you know, making a choice to be healed. You know, What do you want me to do, Jesus would say. Um, some people are stuck, as he said last week, in that wheelchair. Some people um, are in an emotional wheelchair um, and they want to stay there because they get noticed. And for those people who, have, uh, who weren't noticed when they were younger, when all they had was rejection, neglect and isolation when they were younger, that will, emotional wheelchair, it feels pretty good. One version said, and it came to pass after a time in between when he was chased away and when the elders came to him. And it came to pass after a time. 
I think it was about three weeks ago, I'm not sure, um, when I had communion. And I said there, before there was a Pentecost, there was a cross. But before there was a cross, there was a Nazareth. Now, I briefly shared about how uh, Jesus was an unknown for 30 years of his life, roughly. He was unknown where the Father was moulding him, preparing him for his ministry. It's the same for us. And it came to pass after a time where Jesus moulds us. Um, he uses that time. Uh, there's, a, there's an old uh, poem, poem um, that says, Time is a fire in which we burn. Time is a school in which we learn. Because time consumes us. Well, we ask Jesus, I have been in this church for so long, where's my ministry? Jesus, I've waited for so long, where's my, my partner, my life partner? Jesus, we have been stretched financially for so long, when are the finances coming in? Time is a fire in which we burn. It consumes us, and yet Jesus uses time. It's the school in which we learn. And I have no doubt, just like Moses and all the other great men and women of the Bible, that Jesus moulded this man in the wilderness. No experience is lost. The point I want to make, though, the last one here, is that uh, when God wanted to deliver Israel from this awful predicament they found themselves in, what did he choose? He chose a reject. And that's the title of my message this morning. God chose a reject. And you know what? We're all rejects. And it's okay. And I want you to remember this. Your destiny is bigger than your circumstances. If there's nothing else you remember from today, from Jephthah and the whole kitten caboodle, your destiny is bigger than your circumstances. What do we do with this rejection? It goes so deep. It goes so deep. Well, one of the first things I want to share is what not to do. What not to do. All right. Thanks, folks. This is what's called the rejection pendulum. There are lots of ways people can understand rejection, what it means, how people react to it. This is, you may have heard the expression uh, being passive, uh, passive uh, aggressive. So um, I come home and I said, hey, uh, to my wife, Carrie Ann, babe, uh, we're having chicken tonight? Oh, actually, the kids want steak. Oh, I thought we wanted chicken. We're having chicken. Oh, we, can get, we can get steak if you want, we can get chicken if you want. Oh, don't worry about it. It's all right. No, no, I can get it if you want. No, no, no. It's all right. You know, uh, we are all passive aggressive at some point where we don't uh, share our needs appropriately and get a bit narky in the process. When folks get rejected, often it comes in the two major ways. And sometimes it's a bit of a combination. Let's look at them. With the first one, on the passive side, this is where the majority of folks um, uh, experience rejection, where they embrace the rejection. It's a passive response where there's uh, a sense of, yes, I deserve this. This is very powerful in children, and again, that, that uh, template then stays with us for the rest of our lives, where uh, we accept the rejection, I deserve this, um, I'm a, I am lower than the low, I deserve this, and so there's a strong judgment of self, okay? There was this strong rejection of self. Not only did, oh, I have photocopied this, those who are interested, uh, Beck will put some maybe on the back table somewhere after the service. So I have this um, um, at the back at the back for later on. All right. So there is an embracing of the rejection. There's a judgment of yourself. There's a rejection of yourself, and it slides down to this dark this dark tunnel where there's self pity 
the, and leads to despair and depression. The ultimate here is where you have an identity of shame, where you feel so damaged, you feel so low. And I'm talking Christians too, where, again, shame is so illogical, but it feels so real. We sing songs every Sunday about um, victory and healing and God's love, and yet deep inside there's this emptiness, there's a sense of I am so defective. And for some folks, this identity of shame goes so deeply, it goes one step further. The ultimate form of self-rejection is suicide. And so um, this is one of the reasons why um, uh, I believe Australia has such high suicide rates, going back to our spiritual origins, is that the rejection, go, uh, shame goes so deep that, um, uh, that spiritual residue is passed down the generations and so um, they've embraced it. Um, also, this aligns with um, your own family background too. Not everybody who gets rejected is going to be suicidal, not at all, but for some folks it does, where they feel, I don't deserve to live. I embrace that rejection so much and so deeply, I don't deserve to live. And the only way out is the ultimate form of rejection, self-rejection, is suicide. The other side, but different. This is the aggressive. This is where you reject the rejection. It's never about me. Now, I need to point out that sometimes we think we're being rejected, but we're not. It's just that perception. Okay? But it's interesting, whether it's true or not, the results are the same. So, here we reject the rejection. Now, it's not me, it's you. Okay? Um, this is where you re reject the judgments of others. But the pendulum goes to the other extreme. Both of these are extremes, both of them are equally unhelpful, where um, uh, you reject the judgments of others, but what, in so doing, you throw the baby out with the bathwater and you reject the other people completely. So what happens is this, this sense of pride develops and this critical spirit, this unteachability comes down, the, comes down the line as well. And so what happens is this uh, identity of arrogance. It's the opposite of this one over here, where, yes, I've accepted it, I'm, a, I'm, just, I'm just rubbish, uh, I'm the lowest of the low, I deserve to be hurt. Over here, there's nothing wrong with me, you're the one with the problem. Um, uh, uh, if there's a problem, it's your fault, out of my face. Now, if you take that to its logical extreme, if this here, the extreme here is suicide, over there would be what? Murder. It's homicide. Homicide is the extreme, ultimate uh, rejection of others. You cannot reject another person more strongly than taking their life. And so for some murderers, I would say almost all, they have very, very deep rejection issues, but it's expressed in the aggressive way. This will change from person to person, context to context, depending on what's happening. I could be passive in the home, but I could be aggressive in the workplace, or vice versa. I could be passive in the workplace, and with some men who are violent and aggressive to their spouses, um, they're aggressive at home because they can get away with it. They can't get away with it at, at, uh, at home, though. Ah, work. But they can at home. Or I could be aggressive to one family member and passive to another. I could be this way at home, that way in the church, or vice versa. It depends.
That's what not to do. Healing the rejection. Dave, what do I do? How do I get rid of this? Let me ask this question I mentioned before. This is a question that tells me so much. It's diagnostic. It tells me so much about where you stand uh, with you and Jesus. The question is, how do I see Jesus and how do I think he sees me? How do I see Jesus, my beliefs about him, but how do I think he sees me? That's also my belief, obviously. How do I think he sees me? Those two areas will tell me an enormous amount about a person's walk with God generally. First one, we've got to see Jesus as a role model. Think up. For God called you to do good, even if it means suffering, just as Christ suffered for you. He's your example, and you must follow in his steps. He never sinned, nor ever deceived anyone. He did not retaliate when he, was, when he was insulted, nor threaten revenge when he suffered. He left his case in the hands of God, who always judges fairly. Our Lord um, was uh, condemned. He was um, believed to be possessed. They thought he was Beelzebub. They thought he was the devil. They thought he worked for the kingdom of darkness. They said you are of an unsound mind. That's another way of saying, Jesus, you have a mental health issue. In John chapter 8, uh, they were having a, a conversation with Jesus, the Pharisees, and they said, you know, we were not born of illegitimacy, which was a slight dig at Jesus. They knew his background. They knew where he came from. Our Lord was condemned or charged with being demon-possessed, mentally ill and illegitimate. And on it goes. If there was ever a person that was rejected so deeply and yet deserved it so little, it was our Lord. Folks, he's our role model. So if he's our role model, then what do we do? Can you go next slide. Jesus was neither passive nor aggressive. This is part of the answer to what do we do with the rejection pendulum. So here, there's godly assertiveness where I don't swing either way. I'm not passive nor aggressive, but I recognise Jesus is my role model. He never retaliated. He never insulted. He remained true to his nature. He remained true to his, his commitment to his Father. There's also a forgiveness of self too. Sometimes we make mistakes. Sometimes we make poor choices. And forgiving ourselves is deeply difficult. I know some folks, they can say, I can easily forgive others, but forgiving myself is so hard. I, I, I don't need to forgive myself. I deserve punishment. I deserve to be condemned. And for me, that's another way of saying, Jesus, I thank you for being tortured and murdered and dying on the cross. That's not good enough. I have decided that I am my own judge, I will decide whether or not I can forgive myself. That's very dangerous, that's thin ice there. Um, we need to see ourselves as Jesus sees us. If he says, as in Romans, there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, that's it. Ducho, nada. There is no condemnation to those in Christ Jesus. Forgiveness, forgiveness of others. This is tricky. 
This one's tricky. When I see someone uh, who has been a victim of total abuse, and I've heard some terrible stories, and they say to me, David, are you expecting me to forgive them? And I say, in all sincerity, if you don't forgive, that's okay. I'll respect your choice. I wasn't there when that, all that happened. I can imagine how difficult that would be. But even the secular research now knows the power of forgiveness. Someone said once that unforgiveness is like us drinking poison but waiting for the other person to die. <laughs> it poisons us. It contaminates us. So do you need to forgive? Well, in some ways, no, but there'll be consequences if you don't. But as you know, our Lord said, you need to forgive. Why? For their benefit? No, it's for our benefit. As long as you hold on to unforgiveness, there is a strong spiritual connection between you and that person. And when I see folks for inner healing, for, for deliverance ministry, um, we often uh, go through prayers of forgiveness. Now, I've seen folks change just by declaring the forgiveness of that person. That's why Jesus mentioned so much about forgiveness. So much. Also, too, again, here's our role model. Uh, Jesus forgave three hours of darkness on the cross. Think of every terrible sin he went through. They crucified him and he prayed for them on the cross. <laughs> That's our role model. Last slide, thanks. This is how important it is. See to it that no one misses out on God's grace, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble and thus contaminates many. Like that version, complete, complete Jewish Bible. Contaminates. That's what it does. I think most translations uh, talk about it being defiled. We're being defiled. But it has the, the idea of contaminating, of polluting, um, defiling. That's what unforgiveness does. So, there's the first thing. How do I see Jesus? Jesus is our role model. And again, I draw back to uh, Peter's comments last week um, where he uh, essentially said, if you want healing, and I say this all the time to my clients, you've got to meet Jesus halfway. It is your responsibility to put yourself in a position where Jesus heals you. Jesus doesn't want us to be spiritual babes um, with spiritual breast milk week in, week out. And I've got to say, the church overall is filled with spiritual adolescence. Why? Because uh, one of the reasons is that in Hebrews it talks about maturity and that mature believer is one who has been able to uh, uh, discern good from evil over a period of time. For that to happen, you have to be exposed to evil and to make good choices. It's a process. Jesus is our role model. That's not the whole story. The other part of this question is, well, how does Jesus see me? How do I think he sees me? How do I think he sees me? And so, uh, for this next bit, I have two lovely young couple. You can probably turn it off now, too, by the way. Thank you. All right. Up here, boy. Come on. Come on. All right. Thank you. All right. You over there. All right. So, um, Ash is going to be my son for the purposes of this. Um, he, actually is, he actually is young enough to, to be my son, sad, sadly enough. Oh, just as an aside, I felt so old the other day. I was at the post office and uh, it's just a week ago 
and uh, I dropped the folder. And this young teenage boy comes up and goes, there you are, sir. <laughs> For the first time in my whole life. I felt like, I felt like saying, thank you, Sonny. <laughs> True story. Uh, like, thanks, mate. Thanks, mate. You know. Oh, Lord. Anyway. All right. So, Ash is going to uh, pretend to be my son, and he's going to uh, try and convince me that um, uh, he has found the one. He has found this girl here, Exhibit B, girl. Hi, I'm Exhibit B. <laughs> that I have found the one. And then, um, and then Ashley and I have a bit of a dialogue. All righty? Okay. Do, 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 do. Hey, Dad. I've, I've, I found her. I, I, I can't stop thinking about her. I can't stop looking at her. I need her. I love her. Please. I'm sure she's a nice girl, but, but, but what are you thinking? Ash, really? Yes. What makes, what makes you think she's the one? I mean, look at her. <laughs> I'm, I'm, sure she, I'm sure she's a lovely, lovely girl, but oh, I don't know. What, what does she do for a living? She doesn't work in IT or something, does she? No, she doesn't work in IT. She's an audio engineer. Oh, she's like a techie. Oh, man. Like, Really uh, uh, but, uh, I don't know. What, uh, what, what does their parents do? They're not pastors, are they? I don't, They're not pastors. Uh, you know what pastors are like? You know, yeah. live a holy life, don't forget your tithe and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. You know? Mm. You know what pastors' kids are like? Uh, okay. Well, I, don't, I, I don't know, Ash. I, I don't know. I'm a bit, unco- I'm a bit unconvinced. I mean, uh, I'm sure she's nice, but Ash, I, I just think you could do better. Ash, look, look, your, your mother and I have tried really hard over the years for you to make good choices, and I know, look, I know, the, I know the hormones are flooding, but I just, I just, <laughs> PG, PG, all right. <laughs> I just, I just, I just think, I'm sure she's a nice, I think you could do better. I think you could do better, okay? Okay, thank you. All right, thank you. Really quick. <laughs> was it, Laura, what, what was it, quick, just quickly, what was it like to hear me say you could do better? Just quickly. What was it like to hear that? Like I wanted to punch you. <laughs> <laughs> which, which, which he? Just check it now. I've noticed your bruises, Ash. Now it all makes sense now. All right, part two. Part two, how did Jesus see this? Now, I'm going to do uh, a one-person role play here, and I'm going to be uh, essentially Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all in one, but because we believe in the Trinity, that's biblically sound, um, I'm going to have this conversation with myself where Jesus comes up to God the Father, and he says... He's found the one. 
let's see what difference it is. God the Father. Jesus, Jesus comes up. Hey, Dad. Hey, son. Hey, Dad, what are you doing? Oh, I'm just making a few more, few more planets. Nice, nice. What's that one? Oh, that's, that's Mars. Oh, nice. What's, is that water? Polar caps. Yeah, I know. <laughs> They'll look for life. It'll really screw them up. <laughs> um, They'll be looking for life for years. <laughs> anyway, what can I do for you, son? Well, Father, I, I, I think I've, I've found the one. I think I've found my bride. Really, Jesus? What's she like? Ah, oh, Dad, she's amazing. She's amazing. She's, she's just gorgeous. And, you know, I've, I've been preparing for this for so long. And, you know, I'm not rushing the stuff. And I think she's the one. Okay, let's have a look. The issue's there, Dad. <gasps> Jesus. She's gorgeous. I can, I can see what you mean by that. She's beautiful. In fact, in some ways, she, she reminds me of you in some ways. <gasps> There's a purity about her. <gasps> Jesus. She's got your eyes. I know. I know, oh, mate, you have chosen wisely. She's gorgeous. Ain't she, Dad? I'd do anything for her. I'd die for her if I had to. I know you would, son. I can see the love in your eyes. I can see the love in your heart. Oh, she reminds me of you. You have chosen well. Welcome her to the family. End of the script. Point number where I'm up to. <laughs> Your heavenly Father, my brothers and sisters, will look at each and every one of you and he will never, ever say, Jesus, you could have done better. Never. Your heavenly Father looks at each and every one of you despite your background, despite your rejection, despite the pain. He'll never say, Jesus, you could have done better. He looks at you and he sees his son. He's deeply, deeply in love with you. There's nothing you can do to make you, love, make you love you any less or more. He just loves you. How do you think Jesus sees you? It's the question we all need to ask ourselves. Because he's saying to Jesus, Jesus you have chosen wisely. That is how your heavenly Father sees you. He is absolutely besotted by each and every one of you. Can I have the musos up? Thank you. There are some folks here. I've been talking about God and about Jesus. You might not know what I've been talking about. You know rejection, but you might not know Jesus. <laughs> Let me say, Jesus knows rejection. He knew rejection more than anybody. And it's one of those things that we have a linkage with us and the great, the great I am with Jesus in that rejection. He has shared our humanity. He knows what it's like. Some of you might not know the true Jesus. 
I say that term a lot, by the way, the true Jesus, because in my work, I see a lot of false Jesus around the place. You don't, you don't measure up to Jesus. You don't need to be better. My dad's like that. He says a while back, son, I'm not good enough to be a Christian. <laughs> I go, dad, not that way. If you don't know Jesus, I want you to come forward. I do things a bit differently. I don't do the heads bow, eyes closed thing. You come forward and make a public declaration. If you don't know Jesus, or even if you're not sure, please come forward. And there's a bunch of people in the church today who are unsure that they are unsaved. You come forward. <coughs> I want to say, like me, for some of you, your birth is no mistake. You might think you are not meant to be here, but you were. Jesus had other plans. My parents were considering, essentially, killing me in the womb. Jesus had other plans. You were meant to be here. There might be folks here that things happened beyond your control and yet you were still rejected. Your birth, some of the things your ex-partner did, your <laughs> parents did, things beyond your control and you, you still feel so deeply rejected. And you might say, Dave, you don't know what I've gone through. You don't know the pain. You don't know the rejection and the deep, deep shame that I've got. Where was God when I was being abused, when I was being neglected? Where was God where all I thought about was killing myself? The shame and the guilt was so deep. Where were you, God? And my answer to that is, my brothers and sisters, he never left. <laughs> he never left and he never will. I'll be standing at the front here for prayer. The prayer folks or the prayer team will be out here as well. I guess this is a message for, for non-Christians, obviously, but also for the Christians. Everyone in this room has experienced rejection. For some of you, that pain goes so, so deep. If you come forward for prayer, the rejection most probably will not be healed in one prayer. But... By coming forward, you are making a declaration to the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light that you mean business with God and therefore you have just given Jesus enormous room to move in your life. See it as one step in the journey, a very powerful step. Jesus was always there. He never left you. He never, ever took his eyes off you. And he never will. For those of you who want prayer, please come forward. No pressure, no pressure. If the shame is there, that's a false identity, which I'll talk about next week. Your identity is not shame. Your identity is that Christ lives in you. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I live in this body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's your identity. Come forward if you like. Hope you enjoyed that message. Have a blessed week.